Again, welcome to those of you who are here and to those of you who are online. We're glad that you could be with us. So I know that in, your, in the bulletin that Juanita sent out, she put the title of the message as No Condemnation, which is what I told her was going to be the message. But that's not what it is. <laughs> so it's no fault of her own. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm calling this one Take a Load Off. Um, and it's from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Let me read that. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I have a few slides um, of some memes that you may or may have not seen uh, floating around on the internet for the last couple months. Um, a meme, in case you don't know it, is just the primary form of communication nowadays. Uh, it's, it's usually a picture and people superimpose words on it to give some type of description. So the memes are for about 2020 and things that have been happening this year. So in case you can't see, um, this one says the relative importance in 2020 so far. We've got bras dropping off significantly. Coffee has been straight across the board. Cars have gone down as we haven't been able to go anywhere. Internet usage has gone up. Shaving has dropped down. Alcohol levels have gone up. Toilet paper, you can see it's spiked around March or so. Sweatpants are climbing up. And masks, you can see the consistency is just kind of all over the place. And the rating for 2020, one star, very bad, would not recommend. So top one, me being prepared for 2020, full armor. 2020 comes and shoots an arrow right through the small slit. <laughs> 2020 is a unique leap year. It has 29 days in February, 300 days in March, and five years in April. People at the beginning of quarantine learning how to make banana bread on YouTube. People at 12 weeks later, ready to abolish the police. <laughs> 2020's outfit of the month. January, World War III. February, Australia's fires. March, a virus. April, oh no, coronavirus. May, giant murder hornets. And June, riots in the streets. Teenagers in the future trying to learn all things that happened in 2020 for their history final. <laughs> Yesterday marked the beginning of an above-normal hurricane season. Well, that's another one for apocalypse bingo. And now, yes, a nice cup of 2020. And if you can see in the bottom, the ears are poking right in the eyes as he takes a drink. <laughs> this one hits home especially well, because our plans to travel to Mexico were canceled. Travel plans in 2020 be like the expectations, the uh, Sydney Opera House, and in reality, a stack of dishes. <laughs> cannot believe that Tiger King was the most normal part of 2020. <laughs> Everyone making jokes about how 2020 is going to keep getting worse, and then it continually does. 
And in case you missed the news, news anchors every day since January, tonight at 11, doom. <laughs> and finally, theme parks in Japan are discouraging screaming on roller coasters to slow coronavirus spread, with one park urging riders to please scream inside your heart. And thus, we settled upon the official slogan for 2020. Not to say that nothing good has happened in 2020. Just <laughs> point that out as well. So God, in his grace, awakened me. He saved me and rescued me in the summer of 2001. So I've been walking this world as a Christian for about 19 years now. If you grew up as a Christian, like my wife, or like many of you in here, or have been a Christian for any significant amount of time, like me, at some point you've probably had the impression that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Immediately after God saved me, the church that I began attending held three Sunday services and multiple midweek programs. So naturally, I began attending multiple weekly church services, began reading my Bible, attending young adults, I was learning and serving wherever I could possibly could, and I became inundated with everything that the Christian culture had, community had to offer me. And I was truly grateful for most of that. The problem was, however, that I heard way more sermons with emphasis on the unfinished work of the Christian and what we needed to do, and less on the finished work of Christ and what he had already done. And from my observation, for many, if not most of the people inside the capital C church today, Christianity is primarily about me and my performance, my obedience, my prayer life, my witnessing, my fight against sin, my Bible reading, my getting better and better, and so on. And all those things are good things. But according to the Bible, they are not the focus or the foundation of the Christian faith. You see, I've found that as a whole, and as society in general, we spend far too much time thinking about how we're doing individually. If we're growing, whether we're doing it right, I call it spiritual navel-gazing or spiritual narcissism. Constantly fixating on ourselves and how we're doing, comparing ourselves with others and how they're doing, and really think about whether we're doing it right or wrong and whether we're glorifying God enough or not enough, or whatever the case may be. To put it in another way, we keep digging up our own dirt, exposing our roots in an effort to make sure that we're growing. Now, any gardeners out there will tell you that if you keep doing that to a plant, that plant will soon shrivel and die. In other words, we spend far too much time thinking about ourselves and pondering our own lives and our own internal walk. It reminds me of that story in the Gospels where the disciples are out at sea one night and Jesus decides to go water skiing without skis or a boat. So the disciples see him at a distance and they're terrified. But Jesus sees that and he says, don't be afraid, it's me. So they calm down a bit. And Peter, being Peter, calls out to Jesus and tells him to command him to come out on the water. And Peter, with great faith, gets out on the water and starts walking on it. And he's doing just fine until he, takes a look, until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and takes a look down to see how he's doing, or even to contemplate what he's doing. And he begins to sink. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that lots of people are drowning because they are spending way too much time looking down at how they're doing and taking their eyes off of Jesus. You see, we spend way too much time thinking about ourselves, and the evidence suggests that we end up wallowing in our own pity party, 
And what makes the gospel such good news is that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. The gospel is the good news that the determining factor in my relationship with God is Jesus' work for me, not my work for him. His performance for me, not my performance for him. His obedience for me, not my obedience. And it's not that those things are wrong or bad, but they are not the determining factor in how God relates to us. The gospel is the good news that God does not relate to us based on our accomplishments for Jesus. God relates to us primarily based on Jesus' accomplishments for us. Now, most Christians that I talk to don't believe that their accomplishments or their performance are what earn God's favor. But they almost all believe, at some level, that their works or their performance are what keep God's favor. That it was God's gracious blood, sweat, and tears that got us in, but it's our blood, sweat, and tears that keep us in. I know that for me, this year has been very beneficial in bringing this to light in my life. It's not that I wasn't aware of this before all the events um, of this year, but it has been shining a brighter light to reveal this in my heart. I think that as broken people, as human beings, we have this natural bend, this natural instinct and inclination to credit our successes to our efforts and our ability to take control of our lives. And on the flip side, we attribute our failures to our lack of effort and or our lack of abilities, our lack of control. In his lectures on Romans, Martin Luther describes it this way. Scripture, he writes, describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. In the midst of our current situation, more and more studies have been coming out showing that people of all stripes are just plain wearing down, burning out, and giving into despair. Lost income, lost loved ones, financial downturns, bad decisions, political unrest, scientific confusion, distraction or apparent lack of distraction, regret, feeling of lack of direction or calling, and just plain boredom have all been taking its toll on all of us. Marked increases in suicide rates, increases in antidepressant prescriptions, increases in alcohol and drug consumption, domestic disturbances and abuse, the rise of more and more conspiracy theories, and just the general zeitgeist of society today are just the obvious signs of the general rise of unrest, anxiety, and weariness that we're all feeling. Personally, I've felt this unrest and anxiety myself tremendously since the beginning of this year. From all these things and more, I'm often tired and beat up physically, mentally, and spiritually. And by the grace of God, he has continually led me back to still waters of the gospel to find rest for my weary soul. So all of my cards on the table, full disclosure, I wrote this sermon for me because I desperately need it. My hope is that in hearing it, you'll be helped as well. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Transforming Grace, writes this. My observation of Christians is that many base their relationship with God on their performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. 
And I think that's true. I think his observation is right. It's largely, largely being my observation, because sadly, I think that most people assume that Christianity is good advice for good people, rather than good news for bad people. I think most believe, whether they are inside the church or outside, that Christianity is pretty much good advice for relatively good people, rather than simply the announcement of good news for bad people. But you see, that's the difference between religion and gospel. Religion says that God will love you if you change. The gospel says that God's love is what changes you. Religion says God's love is conditional on what you do. The gospel says that God's love is unconditional because of what Jesus has already done. Religion says that your obedience precedes God's acceptance. The gospel says that God's acceptance precedes your obedience. That we don't work for love, we work from love. That we don't work to, for acceptance or for approval, we work from it. The gospel tells us that God's love is unconditional because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, God's acceptance of you and God's acceptance of me is not gained by our successes and it's not lost by our failures. Because the gospel announces that nothing I do will ever tempt God to leave me or forsake me. That while my sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. And that I could never, ever, ever outsin the coverage of God's forgiveness. That's why it's good news. That's the only kind of news that can offer the rest that Jesus is inviting us into in these verses. Weary and heavy-laden people who spend their lives, like you and me, on a performance treadmill, consciously or subconsciously, always running but getting nowhere nearer to the goal, trying to earn the approval and achieve the love and the acceptance and the significance and the security and the worth and the value that are already ours because of what Jesus has already done. In other words, this is an invitation from Jesus to get off the performance treadmill and to rest in the only words that will ever ultimately matter. It is finished. You see, because we are perpetually tempted to live our lives on this performance treadmill, trying to earn for ourselves what God in Christ has already given to us, we need to be reminded again and again and again that like the old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and, all, and the sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. We need to be reminded over and over again that the sins that we can't forget, God does not remember. Just think about that for a moment. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I will forgive them of their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Reflecting on that verse, Corey Ten Boom once said that God takes all of our sins, dumps them into the deepest part of the ocean, and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. It's really, really good news that in a sense, divine amnesia brings us tremendous comfort. That the sins that we can't forget, the sins that we not only remind ourselves of, but the sins that other people remind us of, our failures, our mistakes, our badness, all the stuff that we've done that we can't forget, the stuff that plagues us, are the things that God chooses not to remember. So far as the East is from the West, so far does He cast our sin from us. We need to be told and reminded over and over again that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Not that nothing can separate us from God's love. And that Christians live their lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. Romans 8 begins with those hugely comforting words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Think about that now. No footnotes, no qualifying conditions or statements. And in case you don't realize it, we are all on the receiving end of condemnation almost constantly. Every commercial on TV, on the radio, and on the internet exists to tell us that we are not enough, that we need something else, that we need to become someone else. And we're not only experiencing condemnation from society at large, we experience condemnation explicitly or implicitly from people in our family. We experience condemnation from friends. We even experience condemnations from ourselves internally. Particularly in times of trouble like we're in now, our doubts, our fears, and failures provide us with this constant judgment saying that you're not enough. Do more. Try harder. Come on, get better. Just do it. Constantly encouraging us to stay on this performance treadmill so that we can earn the favor and the love and the acceptance and the approval that we long for. It's constantly reminding us that we're not enough. And yet the Apostle Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what he has done for you, because of what he has done for me, there is now no condemnation left. And on the other side of Romans 8, it begins with those amazing, it ends with those amazing verses where Paul is talking to us about the otherworldliness of God's unconditional love. He says there's nothing in heaven and there's nothing on earth that can separate you from God's love. And he goes on through this list of all these things that we think could separate us from God's love. Not death, not life, nor angels, nor powers, nor things present, nor things future, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. He says there's absolutely nothing that can separate you from God's love because God's love for you is in no way dependent on you, what you do or don't do. God's love for you is entirely dependent on what Jesus has done for you. You didn't earn it, and that's why you can't lose it. And we need to be reminded of this. At least I do. Because we live in a conditional world with other conditional people, and we're kind of just trained in this when we come into this world, that so much goodness means, from, earn, so much goodness from me earns so much favor from you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You love me and I'll love you. Or, in fact, I'll love you to the degree that I feel your love for me. Everything is conditional. There's no such thing as a free lunch. In God's economy, however, love is unconditional. He doesn't love us because of what we are. He loves us in spite of what we are, because of what Jesus has done for us. And so the gospel declares to us that because of the finished work of Christ for you on your behalf, you already have all of the approval, all of the security, all of the love, all of the worth and the value and significance, all the enoughness and the rescue that you long for, that we all spend our lives looking for in a thousand different people, places and things infinitely smaller than Jesus. Now, a number of months ago, I was getting ready to head out of the house um, to go to work. And I was looking for my cell phone because, God forbid, any one of us should ever venture out into the wild without all our lifeline to everything that is internet and texting and social media. So anyway, I was at home, and I was somewhat frantically running around the house because I needed to be somewhere. 
And I was looking for my cell phone in all the usual places. I was on a nightstand, on the charger, in the truck, thinking maybe I left it there. Um, on my desk, on the kitchen counter, in the bathroom, in the pantry, in the fridge, in the freezer, you know, the usual places. <laughs> well, after about five minutes of this, I flop down on the couch thinking, so I can sit down and actually think where my stupid phone is. And I feel something, and I reach down, and lo and behold, my phone was in my pocket. Not in my right pocket where it normally is, but in my left pocket where I don't usually put it. Now, you laugh because I think you've all done it before. Either with your phone, or your keys, or your sunglasses, or your kids, whatever. <laughs> now, I've heard other stories of this kind. I once heard of a guy who was looking for his cell phone in, his, in between the seats of his car with the flashlight on his cell phone. <laughs> now, now, hearing stories like this, hearing your stories like this, gives me a great sense of relief and hope that there are bigger idiots out there in the world than me. Now, I tell that story and we have a good laugh. But people hear that, I hear stories like that, and we kind of just think, what kind of idiot spends his time looking for something that he already has? And my answer to that is every single one of us. We spend so much time and energy looking under every rock and around every corner for those things we long for. Love, acceptance, approval, security, worth, significance, value, all those things that we crave, that we long for, that we were created to desire. We look for these things and in people that are much smaller than Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not the Christian that I'm supposed to be, nor am I the friend or the father or the husband that I should be. In all these things, I wish that I could say with all honesty that I do everything for God's glory. I mean, what Christian doesn't want to be able to say that? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Not some, not partially. Whether you eat or drink or work or change diapers or whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There is no wiggle room. There is no in-between. It's not like you can say, well, I did everything to the glory of God for 23 hours of the day. God's acceptance is not based on a bell curve. It's perfect. Be, it's be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. That's what God accepts, perfection. And so to the degree that we are imperfect in any way, shape, or form, we have already forfeited in and of ourselves any possibility that we can achieve God's love by what we do or by who we can become. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear when he's talking to both the people on the mountainside and to the religious leaders who are listening in. And he says things like, you've heard it said before that if you haven't killed anybody, you're pulling it off. But I tell you, if you've ever been angry with anyone for one minute, you're, before God, you're just as guilty. And again, he says, you heard it said that if you've, ever if you've never committed adultery, you're pulling it off. But I tell you, if you have ever lusted for one second, you're just as guilty before God. And then he concludes that section by saying, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, Jesus is showing that the law of God reaches and demands for much more than just external compliance. 
doing the right thing on the outside. The Pharisees were absolutely amazing at that. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were clean on the outside, but they were filthy and dead on the inside. And so Jesus clarifies the original intent and demand of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. That not only does God demand perfection on the outside, he demands perfection on the inside too. In other words, the motivational structure of your heart has to be pure and perfect. So the bad news for all of us who are trying to earn God's favor is that God's acceptance of us is in no way dependent on our progress. The good news is that God's acceptance of us is dependent entirely on God's perfection. And as an old minister used to once say, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. But God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ask for or imagine. I wish that I could say I do everything for God's glory, but I can't, and neither can you. What I can say, and which is true at all times and in all circumstances, regardless of anything that I do or don't do, is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. That's the gospel. I wish that I could say that Jesus fully satisfies me. I mean, who doesn't want to be able to say that? You can find it throughout the Bible, this longing desire from the various biblical authors who want to be satisfied in God. I wish that I could say that, but I can't. And neither can you if you're honest. I know because my sin betrays that I'm still searching for satisfaction in so many things that are smaller than Jesus. But what I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. I wish that I could say that I surrender all to Jesus. You and I are delusional if you think that you can say that with a straight face or with any modicum of truth. I surrender all to Jesus? No, you don't. I don't either. I wish that I could say that, but I can't. What I can say at all times is that Jesus surrendered all for me. Now that's what I know is eternally true. That's the gospel. That's the kind of rest from our weariness and heavy ladenness that Jesus invites us into. Because of his work, not ours, we get everything that God promised. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us. Now, for whatever reason, I grew up both as a Christian and then when I became a Christian, thinking that church is where the good people go, you know? You've probably heard the people excuse themselves from church because they're, they're not good enough. We're the good people. The bad people are the ones who are still at home being ministered to by Brother Blanket and Pastor Pillow. The bad people are recovering this morning from partying last night. We, are the, on the other hand, are the good people. I mean, look, we're in these strange lockdown times, times of self-isolation. And while we could stay at home, and people would have no idea if we attended church or not, we're here, physically distancing here on site, or we're here at, we're at home, diligently tuned in and to sing and to hear a sermon this morning. In church, we are the cream of the top, cream of the crop. Now, I grew up thinking that. And while no one ever explicitly said that to me, that's what I was led to believe. That's what was implicitly taught. The bad people were the ones sleeping in on Sunday, binge-watching Game of Thrones while recovering from a hangover, and the good people were the ones getting up and going to church, serving and worshiping the Lord. But what I have mercifully discovered over time is that Christianity isn't for good people who try hard. 
Christianity is for bad people who, had, who have given up on trying to rescue themselves. What I've come to realize is that God actually loves and uses weak and bad people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans? There are none who do good, not one. Okay? So when Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous but for the sinner, many people have concluded that Jesus was making a distinction between two types of people or two categories of people. You have people who, by their virtue of their goodness, don't need God. And then on the other side, you have people who, by virtue of their badness, need God. Jesus didn't come for these. He came for these. Or to use another biblical analogy, he leaves the 99 good sheep to find the lost one. Well, Jesus was talking about two types of people, but these are the two categories. There are bad people who think that they're good, and there are bad people who know that they're bad. But there's no such thing as a non-bad person, a non-needy person, a non-sinful person. The reason these people will never come to me is because they think they don't need me and, the reason, and that they're pulling it off. And the reason that these people will flock to me is because they've come to the end of their rope. And God's office is always at the end of your rope. We meet God best. We experience him most intimately when we're at the bottom. At least that's been my experience. Not that he's not there on the mountaintops of life, but that we feel him most closely and most intimately when we're at the bottom and not the top. When we come face to face with our fragility, when we come face to face with our weakness, when we come face to face with our inabilities, that's when God's sufficiency becomes sweet to us. It's very difficult to feel your need for God when you're at the top, when everything's going your way. However you define the top, when you're at the bottom, when you're lying flat on your back with broken legs and the only way up is out and there's no rope or ladder or hope of you ever getting out by yourself, it's in those seasons of life, and you know this well if you've been there, that in those seasons, God becomes more real to you than at any other point in time. The fact of the matter is that the good news of the gospel fixes our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It reminds us that we are weak, that we are needy, that we are bad and broken, and that we fail, that all of us fall short of God's glory perpetually. And that's what makes Jesus so gloriously necessary. That's what makes Jesus' words in Matthew 11 here so powerful and comforting. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who are discouraged and downtrodden, all of you who are depressed and anxious, all of you who are haunted by the memory of your bad decisions and past transgressions, all of you who just can't seem to quit your secret sins and your bad habits, all of you who are realizing that your life is out of control, you're tired, you're sore, and you just want to give up. He says, come to me, all you who are trying so hard to impress yourselves and God and other people. All of you who are constantly wearing masks, not COVID masks, but, and feverishly trying to put your best foot forward. All of you who are trying to secure your own value and worth and love by becoming a better version of yourself and concealing the worst parts of yourself. Theologians have a term for that, and it's called justification by works. What this world desperately needs, especially in our current cultural climate of cancel culture and instant global internet exposure, 
And I say especially our times because that's the only time that we're in. But it's really been true in all times, in all places. What this world needs is one place where burdened and broken down people can find rest. Rest from their guilt, rest from their shame, rest from their fears, rest from the never-ending pressure to get better, to do more, to try harder. Because the three words that define the Christian faith are not, get her done. The three words that define the Christian faith are, it is finished. So my intent this morning is to remind you, Christian and non-Christian alike, that although we can't go back to the past that we have ruined or lost, we can always go to God. A God who promises and has shown throughout history that he loves and uses bad people who fail because bad people who fail are all that there are. A God who promises to love, to use, to redeem, and to restore failures because there aren't any other kinds of people. I have to remind people like me that we can always go to God who has already forgiven our sins of our yesterdays, todays, and tomorrows. A God who, as I said before, does not remember the sins we can't forget. I have to remind myself that while we can't go back, we can always go to God who won't stop pursuing us no matter how far or how fast we so often run from him. It's my job here today to remind you and me of the seemingly too good to be true news that inseparably connects us to the God of repeat offenders. The God of repeat offenders, okay? When Jesus is asked how many times should we forgive someone if they've really sinned against us, seven times? He says, close, but let's try 70 times seven. In other words, it doesn't end. Now, forgiveness from people and our forgiveness for people in your life and mine does have a limit. If we are honest, we can all acknowledge that. That's what makes God's love and forgiveness so mind-blowing and otherworldly. There is no limit. He is the God of repeat offenders, and we can be very grateful for that because every single one of us is a repeat offender, everyone. God is not the God of second chances, as is so often said. Because I don't know about you, but I need a whole lot more than just a second chance. I mean, I've needed like a hundred chances just this morning. So if God is the God of second chances, that's not good news to me. God is the God of one chance and a second Adam, namely Jesus, who takes upon himself all of our sins and all of our unrighteousness and gives to us his perfect record of righteousness. It's Jesus' payment, like the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, who brought the beat-up traveler to the inn and said, here's a payment for the month, and if he needs anything more, I'll come back and, and pay it. That's Jesus' payment for us. It includes costs that we will continually occur, thankfully. I have to remind us, guilty people, that regardless of what the world tells us in all these memes and wherever we hear, and regardless of our present circumstances, I have to remind us guilty people that we are clothed in an irremovable suit of righteousness. And I have to remind you, as I have to continually remind myself, that weary and heavy-laden people already have their cell phone in their pocket. So hear Jesus with fresh ears this morning. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen.